Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The entire field of education has faced new challenges over the past decade as state budgets have tightened. Coupled with economic challenges, new technology, changing demographics of students, and changing workforce needs, our nation's schools are at the center of societal change. Often lost in these political debates surrounding the school's needs are those needs of the teachers, both new teachers and those entering the profession, as well as experienced teachers who are trying to adapt. Today, we'll be tackling some of those issues with a true leader in the field of education. I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, Dr. Renee Middleton, Dean of the Gladys W. and David H. Patton College of Education at Ohio University. Under Dean Middleton's leadership, the Patton College has advanced its legacy of leadership in teacher education, both within the state of Ohio and nationally. Dean Middleton serves on the board of directors for the National Board of Professional Teaching Standards, among others. Recently, U.S. News and World Report ranked the Patton College online graduate programs 31st out of nearly 1,000 applicants. Dean Middleton, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'm excited to talk with you. Uh, Of course, this podcast is really focused on how we can best meet the needs of, of today's students. And of course, you're really at the front line of that in the Patton College. And your college is really one of the most comprehensive colleges of education that that I really could imagine. Can you kind of talk about the scope of your college's programs and some of the uh, values that you try to uphold in your in with your students and faculty? Well, we're very excited about the programs that we have in our college, and they are housed in five departments. Of course, the heart and soul of what we do is to prepare teachers to teach and prepare principals and superintendents. But we're also very delighted to have programs in hospitality and merchandising. Uh, These are programs in our Department of Human and Consumer Sciences and programs in retail merchandising, fashion product development. We also have a Department of Recreation and Sport Pedagogy, and of course those programs house programs such as physical education, coaching education, and other program areas. And then we have our Department of Educational Studies, and that, that department really is as it sounds. It really performs uh, programming in the area of educational foundations, uh, educational research, uh, foundations of education, et cetera. And then our Department of Counseling and Higher Education. We have uh, programs in community agency counseling, school counseling, and programs in higher education. So we really are, as you say, a comprehensive college of education, and we really believe that the combination of all of our programs makes us a very strong uh, college, and we're very proud of all of our faculty and all of our students in those programs. And while you've been dean, the college has really underwent some dramatic transformations. We'll talk about the building a little bit later on, but just the scope of the college has changed since you've been dean. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how have you tried to bring all of those uh, different departments together under one uh, sort of umbrella philosophy? Mm-hmm. Well, in 2010, we really added those two departments that really expanded our undergraduate program portfolio. And those two programs are, as I said, the Department of Human and Consumer Sciences and the Department of Recreation and Sport Pedagogy. And when we added those programs, we gathered the faculty together as a whole, and they really established a mission statement that comprised everything that we do. And all of our programs, regardless of whether they are C, themselves, the faculty see themselves as educators. So it wasn't a straw fit, uh, far-reaching effort to come up with a mission statement that really met the, the needs of, 
uh, today's colleges of education and what we wanted to do to impact schools, communities, business and, businesses, and industries in Southeast Ohio and beyond. So it really was a faculty conversation. We constantly talk with each other about how we can produce a synergy that brings the best of those program ideas together. So we're working across departments, across programs, um, and then to the extent across uh, colleges uh, within the university as well. As I look at uh, the college's uh, website, one of the things that is uh, very prominent is a philosophy where you employ a clinical model of teaching. I know that that's a philosophy that you have, and I also know that that's one that, uh, for lack of a better phrase, is gaining traction nationwide. Can you describe what that clinical model means in the context of teacher training? Well, we've done a lot of research. The faculty have done a lot of research in this area, and in fact, are preparing another paper. But it really is uh, shifting our mindset. Uh, we are the, the primary piece about this clinical model of education is that the P through 12 student, that young learner in the classroom is the priority. So as a dean, what does that mean? It means that if we're going to um, really prepare our next generation of teachers, I as a dean, uh, our faculty, our staff, everyone in that college has to be thinking about how do we best impact that P through 12 learner? They really are our priority. It's not the college candidate. It's that young learner in the classroom. Because by shifting that focus to the young learner in that classroom and what they need, what it does by having our faculty in schools, in the community, working with teachers, working with that student in the classroom, it helps shape our mindset that we now know how best to adjust our curriculum, prepare our curriculum, and make the changes that we need to make in our program to, to make ready that next generation of teachers for today's learner. And so that shift in priority really is, it is a shift because previously under the traditional model, teacher training was the priority. And what we're saying is really that learner needs to be a priority. And if I have that learner as a priority, if the faculty have that learner as a priority, it's going to shift how we prepare the next generation of teachers. And so that, that is a key component of what we call that clinical model. There are other aspects, but that comes first and foremost. They also, that the candidates are spending a lot more time in the classroom. They're getting to see how the beginning of the school year ends, the middle of the school year, and the end of the school year. So it's no longer just one semester at the end of your four years of training when you're in the classroom. Our candidates are in that classroom as freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. In fact, they have a year-long clinical experience where they're spending whole days in the classroom. It's, it's, I, I, I like to, to share this, Scott. This is when I knew we had really made a shift in when we talk about the clinical model of education. It was summer, and we'd had a bad winter, so school was still in middle of January. And the, one of our schools had gotten an award, and I went to deliver the, the award for them for um, the work that they were doing with this clinical model that we're talking about. And I got in there, and the teacher candidates were still there. And I said to them, well, what are you still doing here? School is over. They said, but my school, notice my school, but my school is not closed. <laughs> well, don't you have all yours? Yeah, I do, but my school is not closed. You know, we're still here. We're still working with students. They didn't have to be there. Mm -hmm. They were still there because why? It was their school. And that was that that is a key indicator of how this has shifted and what one of the, the difference is.
It's really, it really sounds like it's as much of a cultural shift as yes. it is a structural shift. Yes, yes. And it, it, although it was structural, but you're, you're, you're right. And we could not have done what we, what we did with the clinical model without the support of arts and sciences. I mean, they were key because, as you know, when you're preparing teachers to teach, their content area is not simply in the College of Education. They have to work with colleagues in fine arts. They have to work with colleagues in arts and sciences. So in many ways, it was us also communicating with our colleagues about how you can help us make this shift, and they've been very responsive. Before we turn to some of the uh, uh, other issues that I wanted to bring up uh, in this interview, there's one additional sort Mm -hmm. of preamble question that I have that I think is really important about your college. You use the phrase called to lead as one of the monikers that sort of embodies the values and philosophy of your college. What do you mean by that, and how do you try to accomplish it? Well, we have a conceptual framework in the college. Now, we have a mission, vision, and values, but that's with our teacher preparation program. And as you say, we're a comprehensive college of education. So we have a framework by which all of our programs hang their hat on. And that is the call to lead. The CA in call stands for change agency, to be a change agent. Any student in the Patton College of Education, we want to ask them, what is it going to take for you to be an agent of change for your profession? So we believe we have a responsibility to to challenge our profession, to challenge the work in our profession. When we see inequities, we see issues with social injustice, whatever that is, you know, if our retail merchandising program, you know, if you're if you're in merchandising, you're in retail, or you're in the clothing business, how you be an advocate for where your clothes are made? You know, child labor laws, et cetera. How am I going to be an advocate for my profession. So that change agency stands for for just that. Um, The LL stands for lifelong learning, that we have a commitment to lifelong learning. And so we say to all of our our candidates and their graduates, when you you come here and you get that degree, whether it's the undergraduate degree, master's, doctoral, you know, this is lifelong learning. You've only just begun. So how do you continue to stay on top of your profession and be engaged in lifelong learning? And then the ED is embracing diversity and all of its many forms. And so we really pay attention to to those issues as it relates to diversity, not just racial and ethnic diversity. We start there, but we don't end there, whether it be issues related to disability, being responsive to to young men and women, kids with disabilities, sexual orientation, families, military and veterans, all of those that we consider to be our diverse populations. And we have a commitment to being responsive to serving them, but making sure that we're preparing the next generation of leaders, which is the call to lead. How do we lead in those areas? And and to ensure that we try to draw the leader in everybody. And we all lead in different ways. So leadership doesn't look the same way for everyone. But what does leadership look like for you? And so we really work to try to bring that out in each of our candidates and help them address what that means for them. It's a, actually a really good segue because yourself, uh, not just as a dean uh, at Ohio University, but as a national leader mm-hmm. in this field, you've act as, acted as a leader. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that, that I've noticed, uh, and, and I know you have because you're on the front line of it, is that that education as a whole, um, but I think particularly 
uh, pre through uh, uh, you know the end of high school mm-hmm. has been under the scrutiny of of state legislatures across the country, and we've mm-hmm. seen that both through the way that funding has been mm-hmm. uh, distributed. In my home state of Kansas, the uh, the the state uh, supreme court ruled the funding formula is unconstitutional as it is, I believe, mm-hmm. in the state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it's under fire from a funding front, but it's also under fire through some political avenues. Uh, so, for example, in uh, Governor Kasich's uh, state budget. It, he had a provision in there, and of course, it's not passed at the time that we're recording this, but it could happen imminently. Um, where he was asking for teachers who were getting recertified mm-hmm. to shadow local uh, or community business leaders, mm-hmm. I, I suppose with the idea that they would learn um, some of the 21st century skills that take, takes place in the business mm-hmm. world to bring back into the classroom. You spoke out about that, mm-hmm. um, and that's one example, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what your reaction was to that to that idea that, mm-hmm. you know, you could argue that it was well-intentioned on the part of the governor, but maybe um, maybe there were reasons to disagree with the way it would have been executed. Well, as you say, I think the governor meant well, and um, I think we're, to the governor's credit, they're, they're always looking for ways about how they can improve uh, the learning experience for uh, young men and women. But I think um, while it's important for the governor to talk to individuals at the business roundtable, because a lot of ideas get generated, and as I said, credit for them for generating those ideas. But crucial to talking to individuals at the business roundtable is talking to teachers themselves. Uh, We encourage individuals at the business roundtable to themselves go into today's schools and see what's happening, see what teachers are actually doing, because teachers are doing more than we give them credit for. They're on the front lines. They know how to teach. They know how to care for that young learner. If given the space and room to do it without the obstacles that we place on them with the best of intentions, but really are harmful to learning outcomes. So I just think we don't listen enough to teachers. I don't think we give teachers the credit they deserve. Uh, We have some stellar teachers in our community. We have some stellar teachers in this state. There are wonderful things happening in colleges of education to prepare the next generation of teachers. And today's teachers on the front lines helping to prepare that next generation. So I would encourage the Business Roundtable to go to the schools in your community, see what's happening, uh, go into those classrooms, and don't just go for, you know, five minutes but really spend some concerted effort to see what's happening in your own schools and communities. You know, when they do Gallup surveys, what we find is that everybody's happy with the school in their local community. We just think it's everybody else's community that's kind of messed up. So maybe we should stop and ask ourselves that are things really as bad as we're purporting them to be in our schools, within our teachers, and how they're preparing that next, you know, those learners. And I, I just think Uh, We've gotten a lot into privatization, and there's a benefit for us to bring public education down because it serves those who would want to privatize education. It serves their purpose. Um, But I I just think that we don't give ourselves enough credit for the good that is happening amongst teachers and in our schools today. And and I like to talk about that because I, I visit the schools myself, and I see what's happening, and I've spent some time in those schools. Um, Teachers are the first ones to challenge themselves to do better. Every day they get up trying to do a better job every day. 
Um, and so I, 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 I'm really proud of the teachers in Ohio, as I know our governor is. You know, I, I, we're preaching to the choir right here, but having had the opportunity, not nearly to the extent that you have, but as a parent um, of, a, of a high school age uh, young woman, traveling around the region for sporting events and, mm-hmm. and various things at area schools, the teachers in Southeast Ohio are incredibly disadvantaged in one sense because there's a lack of economic base down mm-hmm. here. But on the other sense, uh, you know, you get a sense that they are just so committed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, and you're right, they get up every morning really working to do good for mm-hmm. the, the children at Federal Hawking, at Athens High School, at Meg's. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that really gives me a lot of pride in our regional education system that, yes. you know, they maybe don't have the tax dollars that you would get in an urban area, but mm-hmm. man, they work hard. Oh, yeah. And they're able to to you, you, to generate tools and resources, et cetera, that, you know, you wonder, you know, how they come up with that? It kind of reminds me when I was growing up and I, I would look in the kitchen cabinets, you know, we weren't from a, a, a wealthy family. Our family is very much like many of the families here in Southeast Ohio, looking at a cabinet and wondering, hmm, I don't know how mom's going to make a meal today. And I don't know when she came home and she opened them cabinets and she opened them. She saw something I didn't see there and we'd have a meal before us. It's very much like if 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 a lot of our wealthy school districts had to figure out how to reach kids with the resources that the teachers in Southeast Hot, they'd probably be like flummoxed. OK, <laughs> yeah. so our, our teachers have figured out how to take very little and get a lot from it. Imagine what they could do if they had half the resources that some of our other districts have. So, I, you know, give us credit where credit is due. Yeah. yeah. One, of, one of the other um, parts of the governor's proposal, what I read into it was that it was leaning into competency-based education, essentially mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to give uh, – students credit in high school for work that they did in the community. And of course, we've heard the same thing in higher Mm -hmm. education where there should be more competency-based credit awarded to students. What's your opinion on that? And Mm -hmm. um, are there ways that you see that as being workable or or not? I don't have a a lot to say on that, Scott, but I I do think that it's not an idea that we should completely throw out the window. Um, I know that if I look at at the college and you have, we have adult learners coming back to school, I do think that they should be given credit for work experiences that they have. And so I think competency-based education at the school level where you talk about young learners who have done some things and had some experiences, that maybe some of that experience ought to count towards college credit. Now, how we go about doing that in a way that it's not abusing the, the system and that they are learning what they need to learn and meeting certain milestones um, but I don't think I would throw it out of, you know, out the window offhand. Mm-hmm. But I think we just have to be very careful in how we do that and what that might look like. Yeah, that was my thought, too. I think mm-hmm. that there are, you know, I've seen examples of yes. students that have come back after a military service career, et cetera. You can just keep naming them yes. off. And yes. clearly they come in with a knowledge and skill base that's not that of a typical entering college yes. freshman. Um, at the same time, there's still a need for that student to be able to learn to analyze and synthesize yes. in ways that maybe a work experience doesn't necessarily provide mm-hmm. um, over the long term. But I, I think it's an interesting topic. Um, mm-hmm. Are there other, um, I guess, sort of political dynamics that uh, you see as being something that either excites you a lot or mm-hmm. keeps you up at night um, that maybe isn't just happening even here in the state of Ohio, but nationally? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that keeps me up at, at night is 
uh, our understanding, the nation's understanding uh, of what it means to be a democracy and understanding the important role of public education in that, democ uh, in that democracy. I think public education has served as a foundation to part of our democratic principles. And so this whole move to privatize seems to me that it has made us as a state, certainly, um, and, and, and as a nation where we have forgotten certain principles about good citizenship, about how to be understanding of other people's perspectives without that meaning that if you think differently than I do, if you have a different political bent, that that's a bad thing. Our nation has thrived on um, being open. In fact, our nation was established. People came to America because uh, they weren't allowed to practice freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, et cetera. I think all of those are foundational principles that we've, we've gone away from. And I believe that has a lot to do because we have forgotten the importance of public, the public common school, you know, and what that means for a nation like ours. Um, and so that, that worries me that we've gone away from, from those things. Uh, I think the ability to think critically, to analyze, to be able to separate fact from fiction so that when something tells us that someone tells us something that's fake, do we have enough skill set and ability to be able to synthesize that information and really see, really for ourselves, better separate fact from fiction? Um, I've, I know that there's been a pushback on higher education, and we've been seen as these ivory towers, but education in general and higher education has a responsibility to, to ensure that we equip individuals with the ability to ask questions, to problem solve, to think critically. You know, we're not brainwashing young people. Uh, you and I both know that, you know, the worst thing you can try to do is tell a young person what to think. <laughs> so, and, and we're partly responsible for that because we, we, we encourage them to question, to doubt. They're, that's a part of the learning process. So for those who have a problem with higher education because we do that, I have to question what your motivation is. I really do. So that, those are the kinds of things that I worry about and that higher education not, not lose sight of what we have a responsibility to do for college-age students, but also even with P through 12 and giving them that firm foundation um, to begin that process of, of thinking critically, uh, discovery, being innovative, uh, questioning, all of those are foundation to knowledge and knowledge itself and creating and uh, reaffirming knowledge. And, you know, we, we have yet some things that I'm sure answers we've yet to uncover. But I think we have the tools. Hopefully we're still providing this next generation with the tools to be able to uncover and answer some of those yet unanswered questions. You know, I'm a, a big fan of John Dewey uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of the reasons that you just articulated. Mm -hmm. And um, I always I, – I, I actually teach a graduate seminar on occasion where I'll use some of Dewey's writings as a basis for thinking about pragmatism and yes. relation to communication, right? Mm -hmm. And it strikes me every time I go back to some of his writings that they are as applicable today as mm -hmm. they were at the turn of the century yes. uh, when he wrote those yeah. um, in talking about even the rise of technology 
technology and how it creates a fragmentation of community. But the thing that I, the thing that you you said that struck a chord with me uh, and, and made me think about that was describing schools as really part of a community yes. and a community building enterprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you're right. I worry that over the course of the last uh, you know decade, couple decades, that we've lost sight of schools as being. Mm-hmm a formative aspect of every community. Yes. You know, when you were growing up, when I was growing up, you know, everybody rooted for the local high school mm-hmm. and everybody went to the high school prom to see the kids, mm-hmm. you know, walk in and all that kind of stuff. It was just a part of the social fabric, really, yes. of, of, of a community. And it's not that I don't see that, but I see things chipping away at it. Yes. And that's worrisome, I think, in a lot, mm-hmm. of, in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. If we turn away from the state budget and, and – Think about maybe happy things going going, in, <laughs> going into the future. Yes. Um, as you think about where you want uh, your programs to go, but just you know, just as an educator yourself, and where you want to see um, the field of education move, what do you think needs to define excellence in teacher mm-hmm. education and teacher preparation? Or maybe you want to shift that around and say, what defines excellence in the learners um, mm-hmm. going into the future, and how can we get there? I mean, wh- mm-hmm. where do you think we need to go to make things? the way that we think would be ideal? I think um, excellence is, is, can be somewhat time limited. So what's excellent today may not be excellent tomorrow. So what I really say to our faculty and the question that I encourage our faculty to continue to ask and we continue to evaluate is every year, every moment, what, what are we doing today and what does that look like and how effective was it and how could I improve upon that? So that we're always in a mindset of continuous improvement, continue to try to do better. So I say the College of Education is not the same College of Education it was last year. And a year from now, we shouldn't be the same college. So we're constantly critiquing ourselves, asking those tough questions. And, um, you know, I suppose I could be I could be seen as aggravating if I were on the end of a faculty <laughs> member or, <laughs> or a staff. But I know that we've developed a culture where they're asking themselves that, uh, whether it's the lecture that they're presenting today and uh, when they have to present that lecture again, it should not be the same lecture they presented five minutes ago because the learner in that classroom, they change. So even if you're teaching English 101 and you have five, six different sections, and you're teaching them all that week. None of those sections should be the same because the learners are different. You're reaching them in different ways, and you're constantly asking, when I finish this section, well, hmm, that didn't go so well. I guess I'll try this the next set. So it's, for me, it's in that process. It's just having that mindset of never being satisfied, never being satisfied. And I, and I you know, sometimes um, you, you can get to the point where you run out of breath, and what I, what I say to our faculty is, okay, it's kind of like you're in Denver and you're at that high altitude and you have to get used to the altitude. Well, get used to the altitude up here because, <laughs> you know, we're, we should not get to the point where we get to exhale and say, oh, okay, well, this is kind of where we want to be. We're, we're happy. Mm-mm. No. Never happy, never satisfied, always asking what do we need to do next because people are paying good, hard-earned dollars to be here. People are coming for an education to get something. And they ought not to be disappointed. So that that's, I guess, how I would answer that question is, you know, along the way, you celebrate your achievements now. 
you don't just keep going and don't celebrate. You celebrate your achievements. You know, you, you look at your outcome and say, oh, wow, you know, su- surprised ourselves about that. That, we, that was a better outcome than I even expected. But then asking, okay, where do we go from here? And that's, you know, if, 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 if I leave anything, any legacy, it would be that, 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 we're, that, that the college continues to ask itself, what are we doing, what worked, what didn't, and how do we do it even better? That that never, ever goes away. Um, and so when, when people, you know, I hear the public critiquing uh, education, um, I'm around too many people that have that mindset to know uh, that a lot of that criticism is really, to me, you're showing your lack of knowledge. Um, and, and sometimes we just repeat stories that we hear, even if we have no evidence for those stories. And what I hope what I hope that we can do is begin to change that narrative. Mm-hmm. Oh, one, one other sort of detail question before we move mm-hmm. to some uh, concluding broader questions. Mm-hmm. So when I was um, looking back at some of uh, the papers that I've done about emotionality in the classroom, mm-hmm. one of the statistics that uh, always struck me as the amount of teacher stress and burnout that mm-hmm. takes place inside the profession. Yes. Um, for example, we know that the retention rate for teachers in the first three years is, mm-hmm. is really challenging that, that students will get out. And I'm not talking about the Patton College, but no, I'm just I, saying I, nationally. Yes. Yes. They get out and they get into a job, and in that mm-hmm. first three years, at some point they just hit a wall mm-hmm. and they just can't do it anymore. And, but we also know that teachers who have been doing it for a couple decades mm-hmm. also reach that level of stress and burnout. I wonder what we, as a maybe even as a society, but mm-hmm. but certainly as educators, ought mm-hmm. to be doing with an eye towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I don't think it's not that we're failing to prepare them, but I think that there are realities of the job that are 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 well above and beyond mm-hmm. the skills and the passions that that we help instill in them. Mm-hmm. That then they get faced with in the job. You know the. The idea that they have to figure out how to get glue in their classroom because there's not enough supplies in the supply closet, you know, that sort of thing. What what are your thoughts about that? Because I think that's a really important question for the future. I think teacher burnout is real, and I I hope that Ohio does not get rid of the residency program. I think one of the things that uh, we we were the only state to have a four-year residency, teacher residency, and that provides support to teachers that they need uh, to young teachers coming new into the profession. Not only was it making sure that they were being held accountable to certain standards and outcomes, but it was also providing mentoring and support that helps prevent teacher burnout. And I really would like to see Ohio retain that residency program and build in there. If you want to improve upon it, let's improve upon it, making sure that we're building in support systems for mentoring and teacher mentoring. That's really essential, but not get away with that residency. I think it distinguished Ohio. Uh, Maybe there were too many assessments in it. Let's take a look at that. But by all means, let's not scratch the teacher residency uh, program. Teachers need that mentoring, and you need mentoring throughout the lifespan of a teacher, but mm-hmm. those first three years are critical because if we can keep them past those three years, we tend to see them staying in the profession longer. There's a lot of stress being put on teachers. Get rid of a lot of those assessments, et cetera, that we think is making the system good, but it's not. As I said, teachers know what they're doing, and, and, and I'm not one that's against assessment. I just think that there's an overuse of assessments and a misuse of too many assessments mm-hmm. for the wrong reasons. Uh, so I would like to see Ohio get a fix on that. I know that that's something that um, the Ohio Department of Education is looking at and examining. 
Um, I know the superintendent, Maria, is, is he's a good superintendent, is really looking to see what he can do to improve uh, teaching across the state. So uh, he certainly has my support. But those are areas that I, I, I really hope that we kind of examine, not, not throw that, that out the window. Let's shift back to talking about students for a minute. So mm-hmm. as I think about, you know, myself in relation to, like, my daughter and, and, and kids mm-hmm. her age, I think students today, by and large, are coming into the classroom with advantages that are seemingly unheard of if you go back even 10 years. You know, they've got access to technology and information mm-hmm. like never before. Um, they, I think that their their curriculum, starting in preschool, going all the way up, is much more well thought out than ever before. Um, and, and so there's a lot of advantages they have, but we also know that they have challenges um, for some of the same reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of the technology, they have a lot of distractions. Because of the more thought out curriculum, there there is a tendency to pile a lot of assessment onto that. So there's, a, there's two mm-hmm. sides to a coin for all of those things. Um, wh- what do you see as being something that's unique about this generation of students that mm-hmm. are entering our classrooms now? And what are some of the things that you're trying to do to help prepare the teachers for those students? Mm-hmm. I, think, I think today's students are challenged with all of the information through all the different mediums and mechanisms that come. I mean, whether you're talking about social, social media and as you talk about technology, there's information out there abounding that they have access to. That's a privilege but it also comes with its challenges. How do we help them synthesize and get through all of that information and figure out how to make sense of it? So a challenge for today's learner is figuring how to, I call it sense making, making sense of all that data and information out, is out there so that you don't come, become so overwhelmed. How do you synthesize it? Uh, they have access to it. Now, we may, you know, in some communities, you may be helping them figure out how to get access to that information. You know, in Southeast Ohio, we're not always wired as we need to in terms of being able to access information. But I think we have more, even in Southeast Ohio, you have more availability of information than we did even 10 years ago. So that's, as I said, a privilege, but helping them figure out what to do with that information, how to make sense of that information, and how to use that, inf- and then determining what's credible or not, because there's a lot of misinformation out mm-hmm. there. So how do you determine if something is a newsworthy source, or how do you determine if it's accurate, if a source of accuracy? Those are the skills. That's, that's t- much tougher, but I believe we have to help today's learner figure out how to do that, not just how to access it, but how to make sense of it. Um, and then how do you, once you make sense of it, how do you use that to address and answer problems and, and mm-hmm. answer questions and solve problems? So that, I think, is, is our challenge for today. It becomes a different challenge for us in the classroom because it used to be that the teacher standing in that classroom was the purveyor of the information. Young learners didn't have access to it. That's not the case anymore. We really don't necessarily have to stand in the classroom anymore and provide information. What the bigger challenge for us is how do we help students learn how to synthesize that information, how to make sense of that information. What are the tools? What's the mode? How do you go about doing that? 
that's the bigger challenge for us today. And I, mm-hmm. I'm not convinced we're doing it as well as we should, but that's our challenge. Yeah, it sounds like a great area for collaboration with, <laughs> with the Scripps College. We'd love to. <laughs> love to work with you. Hey, I've got one last question. It's, sure. it's the one that you'll be most excited to talk about. You, you recently got to oversee a, a significant capital project with yes. respect to renovating McCracken Hall, which is the home of the Patton College. Yes. What? You know, it's, it's a beautiful building. And what are some things that when you were designing that building that you tried to, um, you know, put into the building program to really modernize your college that, mm-hmm. that you're really excited about? Well, Champlin Architects did a very good job of listening to our faculty about what it was that they wanted. Now, interestingly enough, our faculty had a very short list. They just wanted a building that didn't leak anymore, that had <laughs> that had the same climate throughout so that it wasn't 90 degrees in one part of the building and, you know, you had to put on a sweater and your teeth were chattering in another part of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we also wanted, we wanted to create a, a learning environment where we had a lot of space in the building for collaborative learning for even one-on-one conversations, group conversations. So when you go into the building, the aesthetics of it, it was so nice to be able to walk into a building that this last semester, we moved into the building in January. In about February or March, you really started seeing people figure out the different spaces in the building, whether it was the project rooms, you know, whether it was the instructional uh, technology lab space, you know, whether it was the uh, classrooms that are designed with different technology enhancements, to really walk through the building and see the building being used the way it was designed to be used. Uh, there, isn't, there isn't a space in that, the seminar rooms, the seminar rooms are for small group discuss, discussions and seeing that used in a way. Uh, we wanted to create a building that didn't just address the needs for today, but uh, it had been many, 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 many years before that building was renovated, and we knew we were not just building a building for today, but for tomorrow. So that 50 years from now, we wanted to uh, construct the building in a way that would stand the test of time, and, and I'm hopeful that we we've done that. Um, there are a lot of nice spaces there. You know, we have a, a lot of aesthetics there, whether it be the green roof, uh, all of our labs for our hospitality programs, the demonstration kitchen. Um, our, our counseling and higher ed center has a uh, counseling center that helps us prepare the next generation of counselors. So there's just a lot of different spaces there that help the faculty perform their work. But also um, the building was designed in a way to optimize learning for our students that help them in terms of collaborative learning. And, and we think we've been successful in that regard. You know, I remember when you did the grand opening and I got to tour around, uh, it strikes me in retrospect now mm-hmm. that that phrase clinical yes. uh, is something that is really baked throughout that building. Yes. You don't, you don't mm-hmm. walk around and just see a bunch of, you know, lecture halls or, right, or lecture right. classrooms. I mean, mm-hmm. it really it really looks to be a building that provides for a lot of vibrant activity. And you um, can see the activity, yeah. whether it be the Doxy collection. And, you know, it's kind of like our storefront window where you can see the retail merchandising fashion mm-hmm. product development on display what they do um, it, it's we wanted people to be able to see learning taking place and what happens in that building so thank you for recognizing yeah well that. even even the uh, the hospitality's uh, demonstration yes. kitchen yeah. I thought was yeah. I wish I had that yeah <laughs> in my house. well listen Renee it's been wonderful to have you on and I think that um, you know something that you and I both share in common is a passion about um, having students in the best position possible to learn. And I know that your college is doing a tremendous amount of 
great work in not only preparing teachers, but as you said, being called to lead to make sure that that message is vibrant um, throughout not just Ohio, but the nation. And so thank you for doing that. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Scott. You bet. My guest today has been Dr. Renee Middleton, Dean of the Gladys W. and David H. Patton College of Education at Ohio University. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast and Facebook. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth on behalf of WOUB Public Media. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you.